I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is my dear friend, Peter Rennert. Peter is a former professional tennis player who was ranked in the top 10 worldwide in doubles and the top 40 in singles. He qualified for the Australian finals open twice, uh, was the former number one college player in America. And then at age 25, his career ended because of injuries that he sustained from pushing himself to the point where he couldn't play professionally anymore. After his career ended, he traveled the globe teaching thousands of people of all ages and skills to play tennis professionally, including, for example, helping McEnroe for a few of the of the wins that he had. And through the process, he devised a new system that he taught me. This was the first time we met about, which is called TELOS, the effortless life operating system, which I find so interesting in terms of it's not just effort or excellence that make us who we are. Sometimes finding the effortless makes us even better at what we do. I think you're going to absolutely love this conversation with my dear, dear, dear friend, who I haven't met for a while, as a matter of fact, Peter Rennert. So let's do a quick introduction for people listening. I I met Peter in part of a training thing, and then he told me about Telos, and I actually don't play tennis, but I played that day, which was really quite something. I mean, I play, but I'm really not that good, but I did really well, which blew my mind. And then when it was the evening and dinner, of course, I looked around, and then I found him, and I sat right in front of him, And we spoke for what must have been like four or five hours nonstop about every topic in life. Such an amazing conversation. We spoke about the children. We just spoke about effort, about excellence, about so many things. And it was truly, truly an enriching experience for me. And so we stayed friends then. I believe when we spoke the first time, I told you it was your duty to the world to actually deliver Telos to the world in a more formal way rather than one-to-one. And I know that you've done quite a bit of progress on that, so we're going to talk about this too. But I want to start by introducing you more as the two lives that you lived for people to understand. So, uh, you know, in my introduction, I mentioned you were top 10 tennis professionals. As you said, you start travel at age 12. And from the people that I know that play tennis, it's an incredibly demanding life. So tell us about those early years. What does it take to be a professional tennis player? Hmm. Well, I think it on the surface, it takes the same thing it takes to be a professional anything. Attention to, de- <laughs> okay. attention to detail. You know, what are the aspects? I mean, for me, I would say right now, and there are a lot of tennis players who I love to watch. I'm going to pick Djokovic for the moment because as far as a professional player who talks about his process, he's paying attention to the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual life. And he's working on all of them. So, and it changed. Today, the game is more physical. When I played, really, 
I mean, the chances of becoming a professional tennis player and earning a living are 100 out of however many people are on the planet. So mm. essentially the odds are you're not going to make a living playing tennis. So, and it wasn't my goal. I tried to make my goal. I still remember at 17, I tried to make my goal. I want to win Wimbledon. And I like some voice in my head said, yeah, it's a ridiculous goal. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? I don't know. know, uh, I haven't looked at it too deeply. I just know like it seemed unrealistic. It seemed unattainable at the time. So I was more of like, I know why I play tennis. I play tennis because I love to be outdoors. I love to run around. I love to hit a ball. I had a very competitive part of my personality that was nurtured and honed and developed and I grew up playing tennis with John McEnroe, who a lot of people know. And John and I, John was, I would say, was more competitive than I was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but only in a way, because we were equally competitive. I just, I didn't feel the same pain in losing that he felt, or at least it didn't seem so. But we still competed intensely. And like, you know, tennis, one of the beautiful things about tennis is, I think I've heard Jim Lair talk about it quite a bit, is that as a the catalyst for growth is to be in this, you know, where all the pressure is. And if you think about the life of a tennis player, we can play one, two, or three matches in a day. We never know when the match will end because a match can go on forever. You have to win by two points at the end of the match. Yeah, They didn't have tiebreakers when I started growing up. There's so much cheating going on. It's way worse today than it was when I grew up. You're not allowed to get any coaching whatsoever. So, there's all this pressure, but I basically just loved being outdoors, running around, hitting a ball. And I would say what made me great at tennis was my absolute joy in going for a target. I could put a tennis ball can a hundred yards away and try to hit it and miss a million times. And when I hit it, it was the 4th of July. It was whatever your big, <laughs> it was New Year's Eve. It was whatever it was. And I didn't know it at the time, but I enjoyed the process of going for a target. And that means I was able to hit a lot, a lot of balls without getting really frustrated because the target, you know, it just kept me totally engaged. That's so interesting. Uh, and then, you know, tennis, so then you go through, you have the junior level and you play tournaments and there are turning points in a career. So like for me to make it as a pro tennis player, there were really specific turning points I can see. One of them, the birthday rule. Oh, Malcolm yeah. Gladwell Malcolm wrote about Gladwell. it. But yeah. It made a difference in my life because I was always like 30 or 40 in my section. They changed the birthday rule. I got an extra year in the 14 and unders. And I went up to number five in the East because I was suddenly playing with people my age, my strength. And as soon as that happened, then I believed, oh, I can do better. And then I was number one or number two you know, with John and I, one and two for the next five years. So that got me to Stanford where... I had a very conscious decision. Do I want to be a small fish in a big pond or do I want to be the big fish? And I knew without a doubt I wanted to be the small one. Oh. Right. So I went to Stanford because I was offered a full scholarship to every school in the country except for three, Stanford, UCLA, and USC. And those are the only three I was considering. Because at best, I would be like maybe the singles lineup. I was six people played and I was like six or seven on the team. So clearly... I wanted to be in an environment where I could grow, not one where I was already the most fully grown. So interesting. So that that moved. And then Stanford, what happened? Stanford, there was a turning point. This is this is the moment. Sophomore year, eight, seven people travel on a tennis team in college tennis at that time. And I was number seven and played a challenge match 
I had to play a challenge match with someone where if I lost it, I'd be eight. And if I was eight, that was it. You're not traveling. Yeah. That was February of my sophomore year. I won that match. Then the person in front of me lost like 10 matches in a row. I won all mine. I moved up to six. I got to six. I won a challenge match. Then that happened. So I was six. Then the person at five and I switched because I was winning. He was losing. Then the person at four got injured. And at the NCAA's national championships, we're playing UCLA in the finals. And I was playing number four now, where three months ago, I was almost not on the team. And I clinched the national title for our team, upsetting a guy named Bruce Nichols at the time. And that was, you know, what a turnaround from almost not making the team in three months to clinching the team national team championship. And then the three people in front of me either graduated to turn pro and I was now the number one college player in America on the number one team in the country. Oh, wow. Three months earlier, I almost didn't make the team. Hold on. So these are two, as always, we go into the most interesting topics. You said twice that certain events happen from outside you, regardless of how hard you try. But the idea of Malcolm Gladwell's and basically being just so that everyone is following. If you are in the 14-year-old, but you're the youngest player in that team, then everybody beats you. But you don't know it. Exactly. And, and the idea here is that you, you are physically, you know, the difference between a 14-year-old and a 14- and 10-month-year-old is actually physically visible. And so you can actually win a lot more matches if you're just 10 months older than the youngest player, right? Exactly, correct. In your lifetime, what happened is they changed that and that gave you that advantage. So that's one stroke of luck. And then the second stroke of luck is all that happened around Stanford and how, you know, people graduate and other people get injured and so on and so forth. And then you're now the number one college player in the number one team in America, right? So that's really, I'll say, Peter, as always, you know, that's really humble of you to say, it wasn't just me working my backside off. It's also events on the way that get you to those places. Do you believe that this is true of everything? Oh, yeah. I actually don't believe in the word luck. Uh-huh. Tell me more. I, I think preparedness and opportunity intersect. It's what we call luck. So it may be semantics, but preparedness and opportunity. And as you summed it up, I thought of one other thing that really is significant is early on, I basically did things I enjoyed doing. And I enjoy working. I enjoy running. I wasn't you know, trying to avoid that. But there were certain drills that we did that were not enjoyable. They were hard and and so we didn't do them. And we had we had, you know, Harry Hopman was the 25 Davis Cup championships with Australia to his title would come over and they do these drills and John and I basically played mini tennis. That's just using the four service boxes where you can't hit hard and you can't hit spin and we would play 3 out of 5 sets like 3 or 4 days a week. That's not how people normally train at all. And then we would play sets, but one person would serve from the service line. So it was really close to the service line. And you basically can't get a return back because from there they can bang. So it would always be a tiebreaker and we'd switch. And then we'd play a set where one of us would stand at the service line and the other guy would serve. So you had to like pick the ball up. Today they call it a sneak attack by Roger, the, uh, the saber. <laughs> uh, it got a name, but John and I were doing that like all the time. So I only mentioned it because as you were talking, I realized I also, we organized everything I did around, it was enjoyable. 
That's so interesting. So again, I have to admit, before I met you a few years ago, my understanding of the life of a professional tennis player it is that it has no joy at all. It's just train, 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 train. It didn't. As a pro, that's where my career floundered. I did great as a pro while I was in college. I didn't know why. I thrived. You're right. When we played, it was even worse. There were no team. There was nobody traveling. It was a lonely life. You're traveling around the world. You had to play all the time. If you did really well, you lost pretty much every week. It was just how many times you, <laughs> it was just how many times you won. I mean, very few people, only one person walks away winning the tournament. In the last 20 years, it's been three guys basically who are doing that. So if you go and you win two matches and you get to the quarterfinals and then one week maybe you get to the semis, you still lose, but you'll go way up in the rankings because you're winning matches. Uh-huh. So it was it was a lonely hard existence, but when I was on at Stanford, my senior year at Stanford, I took the winter semester off and I traveled to Australia and I got to the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam tournament, the Australian Open, and came back. I was ranked 40 in the world. I was still in college. I never got higher than 40 in the world in singles. I got up in the top 10 in the world in doubles. And I didn't know why, but the reason why was because when I was in college, I had support. I had a fraternity that I belonged to. I had a college that I belonged to. I had a town, Palo Alto, that I belonged to. Northern California was a real tennis uh, mecca. Then I was really part of the USA. So there was all of this support and I thrived. I mean, I went from, you could say I got to college. I was ranked around 1,000 to 2,000 among college players. I left one, the best. I left at that thing. And the reason I thrive at the top, I thrive because of community, because of support. And now on the tour, you see the best players can afford to bring a team and they talk about their team always because it is really that part is it's hard like a professional athlete absolutely has to endure some unnecessary stress as i refer to it and what makes part of what i do quite different is i don't think you ever need to endure unnecessary stress in training and we'll go into that more as i talk about it because one you have to identify what do you mean by unnecessary stress Let's go there. I want to summarize this stage of your life with, at age 25, you're completely burned out. Completely. You're injured. So tell us that bit quickly so that everyone knows the rest of the story. Uh, okay, so basically the last two years of my career, too, I, sort of, I plateaued at 40 in the world for two years. I was not enjoying myself. It was lonely traveling around the world, you know, basically competing. And whoever you traveled with, somehow you always ended up playing them in the first round. So, you know, that creates <laughs> a little friction. And I remember I was playing one tournament in Milan and I took a step running for a ball wide and the court had like a little undulation in it. And when I went to plant, I sort of hyperextended backwards and it caused a pain in my sciatica area. And I played two and a half more years, basically under the thing is like, I only needed to perform a couple hours a day. So naproxen, butazolidine, whatever anti-inflammatory was available, I would take it so that I wouldn't be in pain while I played the match. But then after the match, I'd be in pain. And I just thought that's what athletes do. They, you know, they tough it oh. out. They suffer. They, they work through the heart. Well, every time I looked at television, I, no matter how great the athlete, you know, when you ask them, just like you asked me, what did you do? How did you become a tennis player? I work hard. I worked really hard. I put in the hours. I did the time, the 10,000 hours, as they talk about now. And that's the mythology 
and the culture that I bought into. I thought that's how you get good. And then finally, the last year, it was like I was always in pain. I couldn't really push off and go for the ball. You know, I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't go out there because I couldn't play at the level I know I could play, and so I couldn't, I couldn't win the match, and it hurt to do it. And I was like, okay. Well, the conscious choice was either I'm going to walk without pain when I'm 40. This is the thought at 25. Do I want to walk without pain when I'm 40, or do I want to try and squeeze a few more years out of a career? And it was an emphatic, I just want to walk without pain when I'm 40. At that point, I was just, I didn't even pick up a racket or look at a tennis match for five years. It was, I didn't. Oh, wow. So it wasn't only um, a physical injury, I would say. It was physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, complete and total burnout. I, as many athletes, I'm not going to say all because I see some who don't have this, but many of us are emotional cripple feels a little too strong. We're extremely undeveloped in our emotional and spiritual and mental lives. We've spent almost all of our lives focused on the physical. So no skills, no life skills. Can I say this is not very different, if you don't mind me saying, from a professional career executive, right? Yeah, they really focus on doing, on work, on maybe the brain work that's behind becoming a a successful business executive or whatever, if a successful entrepreneur. But myself included, in my young years, had no clue how to take care of myself physically, had no clue how to take care of myself emotionally. It was work, 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 work. I was reasonably spiritual, but that didn't really filter into my life in any possible way. It was just a, a belief system, but not a lifestyle, if you want. And it's not unusual for a mother who has just had two babies to live the same lifestyle. You know, the kids become all of her focus and you know, we just beat ourselves into it until it just beats us down. I didn't know that. Yeah. And at age 25, you you maybe are not told to know that, right? Well, no, at 25, I'm quite clear. I had a midlife crisis at 25. <laughs> okay, tell me more. Well, that's the gift. <laughs> at 25, I realized, wow, I'm like, I don't think I'm adding anything to the world. I mean, I'm trying to enjoy myself, but I'm not doing anything positive and I don't really know how to live. And it's like, okay, well, this is where something cool goes. It's like, I go, okay. So that, you know, to me, like whatever it is you're doing, to me, a midlife crisis is you suddenly question, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What should I be doing? Is there anything I should be doing? Does anything have meaning? But I was 25 and I was like, uh, first thing I was like, all right, this is good. This is a good age to break down because I'm young enough that I'll heal more quickly and I haven't made choices that make it harder. Right away, somehow I saw it as a positive. That was helpful. And then I was like, okay, my best thinking got me here. (laughs) I need to learn a new way to think. And then I just started devouring different texts from, gosh, the text was like, there was, God, there's so many. The Celestine Prophecy, I liked the insights. I really liked the insights. So I tried to just live by those insights. And then there was Deepak Chopra came out with the seven spiritual laws of success, which to me seems like a blueprint for how to figure out why you're here and what are your unique talents and interests and what you should be doing. Marianne Williamson was wrote a book called The Return to Love, and 
It was reflections on something called A Course in Miracles. There was something The Artist Way by Julia Cameron, and I forget the other author's name. Then Bruce Lipton was open. You know, I mean, it just was one after another of people who thought different than the way I thought. Homeopathy and George Fatoulkis and the explanation of what a human being is from the homeopathic point of view was just everything was new. And I was like, then Tai Chi and Qigong and, and yoga. And I suddenly was devouring other ideas and then trying them out. Some of them work, some of them didn't work. And it was only because I was for 14 months. When I stopped playing, there was 14 months, which I describe as sort of the black hole of my life where I was, if you picture having a really, really bad toothache, I had that going from my butt down to my foot on both sides, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 14 months. So there was no relief. There was no position I could get in. Sleep was you know, momentary. And no one, like when they took x-rays, it was a bulging disc. But turns out 80% of our population is walking around the world with a bulging disc. They don't all have sciatica. They don't all have pain. Why is that? Hmm. It wasn't herniated. You know, herniated is it would like blows up type of thing. You got you kind of have to have surgery when that happens, I think. So from physical therapists to chiropractors, you know, I saw everyone and no one could really say, here's how you get out of pain. Wow. So how did you get out of pain? One step at a time, trial and error. The first step was hydration because it gave me a moment of relief. I had read a book, which it turns out that, I mean, fear, I was just filled with fear. So that's not good for the muscles. They don't function at their best if they're filled with fear. But I was dehydrated. I didn't know I was dehydrated. When you're dehydrated, then every time I'd feel, there was no you know, lubrication for, my, for the muscles. So everything was always tight and pulling and, and hurting. And it was like just... The simple act of just making sure I was hydrated every day began to give me a little bit of relief. And from there, it was just, you know, then... A tiny bit of self-care, basically. Yeah, of, of self-awareness about like how it affects. Let me take a sip of water because I am horrible with hydration. <laughs> I'll have one too. <laughs> so we then, can you touch on fear? Because I can imagine if you've spent your entire life, and I think a lot of people have go through this at some point in their life where you spend an entire life or several years expecting that this is your life's course, you know, you're in a relationship and you think he's the one and you know, or she's the one and you're gonna be there forever and so on and then something changes. That moment for you was, I'm a professional tennis player, this is what I do, I'm going to, you know, keep going with this and then suddenly poof, you're sitting there with no prospects of playing anytime soon, and fear sets in. Well, I don't know that it won't. I think fear had set in before I finished playing tennis. The, <laughs> because yeah. fear, for me, a couple of things is like learning. If I'm in a true optimal learning state, there's no fear. But if you look at the life of a tennis player, we're afraid to miss, we're afraid to lose, we're afraid. Yeah. And it gets smaller and smaller, that space that we allow for learning. So. I think the fear started way before that. And it, there are different fears that came in at that point. But when my tennis career ended, I did it. I mean, I did something that actually sort of saved my life was a month after my career was over, I joined an acting class. Did you? 
Yeah. And I started acting. I was like, now, not for the right reasons necessarily in terms of, you know, in hindsight, it was more for fame and fortune, which are not good drivers for me. But what I did do is it immediately connected me to a whole social world, which was good. So I wasn't alone. I was suddenly learning a new craft. I literally dove into learning how to break down a script, learning how to read a play, learning how to read a script, learning how to write one, act, write, direct, produce. I spent 10 years doing that. I, In the world where you have to get paid well for it to be that that's what you did, then technically I'm, I wasn't one, but I was. I'm still a member of the Actors Studio. I start in a play at the Actors Studio with uh, Karen Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark. She was played by Strindberg called Miss Julie. She played my mistress and Karen Silas played Miss Julie. Peter Stormare, who he's now made a lot of movies, came in and directed it. So I did a lot of off-Broadway stuff. I loved all that. And I did that for like 10 years until I realized like, this isn't going to pay the bills. <laughs> this, you know, <laughs> you know, this is, And there were a lot of depressing parts of that aspect of my life as well, because you go to audition for something and uh, I'm 35 or 30, no, 30, I'm 30 something. And a 21 year old kid is sitting there, you know, screening for, you know, some film for gangster number one or gangster number two. <laughs> and he says something, looks at his phone or his watch and goodbye, go away. I was like, oh, this is too humiliating. I mean, I can't, I don't have thick enough skin to do that. And that's when I began to teach tennis. And when I first started teaching tennis, that's, yes. so I know I didn't really, the fear, it, fear was always there. It wasn't like, oh, that's the moment where fear hit me. I realized fear was debilitating. That's all. I had no idea how to get rid of fear. I know it didn't help me. So let's talk about this for a while. So tennis, you're starting to teach people what you learned, right? So it wasn't like you were, you didn't know any different then. So you were basically teaching work hard, this is how you get the ball, and so on and so forth, correct? No, I wasn't. I was considered a sort of strange, esoteric teacher. So I always had this <laughs> okay. leaning toward that, but there was no organization, no structure, no understanding of why things went well, no understanding of how to create an optimal learning environment. You know, So I was just basically flying blind every lesson, but something I was doing was right because I was really focused on awareness and feeling. And I always, fortunately, I never thought I knew like the right way to do it. I looked at the pro tour and I said, boy, everybody hits the ball different there. You know, so if somebody says this is the right way, like I rebelled against that as a player and I rebelled against that as a teacher, that there was a right way. That's really interesting. What do you mean? There isn't? No. If you can find one universal truth, like closest thing in tennis that I've found to a universal truth is the ball goes where the energy goes. So hmm. you got to learn how to efficiently transfer the energy. The form you're doing it in is a tennis stroke. If you're a painter, you're doing it through, you know, your painting hand. If you're, I'm not sure as a business executive. Oh, of course. What the right description of the form is, but the efficient transfer of energy is as close to a universal truth. And I mean, I did a training with, where I was the one doing the training with, God, there were like three or four different number one tennis players in the world, men's and women's. And it was a USTA training and they were working on the development program for the players, like to develop the best players. 
I was training them and sort of team building and doing things like that and watching them as they were doing this. And they didn't agree on anything. <laughs> there was no correct grip that everybody said, yep, that's the right grip. They found things where they had this transfer the weight into the ball. I call it energy now, but transfer the weight into the ball. That was one thing they all agreed on, that you want to transfer your weight. At the moment of impact of the, with the ball, you want to be aware of where your weight is and you want to be moving it into the ball. That was the only universal truth I knew. And very early on, I got connect your breath to the act of hitting a ball. So I would teach that almost from the beginning I taught that. And that connects the mind and the body. That does, that creates relaxation. Like all this stuff happens. I didn't know what to do about it, but I just knew, oh, that's a good thing to teach. Because most people hold their breath. And now you want to go to fear. When we're afraid, we hold our breath, which essentially is an act of suicide if you do it for six minutes. So it's not a healthy, <laughs> it's not really a healthy mm -hmm. choice to hold our breath. But on a tennis court, anybody who's listening to this who likes tennis, anytime anything happens in their life that's unexpected, odds are they'll hold their breath. You get a bad bounce, we hold our breath. The ball comes up high to my backhand, which I don't like to hit. I hold my breath. I hit a ball that I think is going to go out. I hold my breath while I watch the ball. We do it all the time. And all it is, and fear seems like too strong a word with tennis players. When I use it, they get concerned that, well, not afraid. I go, well, what are you? This is fascinating. You're afraid the ball is going to go out. So hold on. We have to take those one by one. So let's talk about breathing. I think that's a good place to start. Okay. I tell you openly, when you were talking right now, I realized that this actually is true for me. So unless I'm really, really organized around, I'm exercising, for example, so you know that you're exhaling at this moment and, and inhaling at another moment and so on, I surely hold my breath more than I should, I think. So first of all, how do you, I mean, how do I find that out? How do I change it? What am I supposed to be thinking about when I do this? Oh, okay. I don't know that I call it thinking, but I'll tell you where I focus. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you where I focus my attention. So the first thing is anything I do, I want to connect my breath to the act of doing it. That's the first thing. Whether it's walking, you know, an awareness of the in and the out of the breath. Specifically, the space between the breath. The pause. In the breathing cycle, after I exhale and before I inhale, there's a natural pause. Same after the inhale and before I exhale, but the one after the inhale is smaller. It's much easier to notice this space after the exhale. So I place my attention there. Now, when I first started doing this, after I exhaled, there'd be about a second and then I'd inhale. I've simply placed my attention on that pause. I do it consciously for probably 10 minutes a day, you know, a minute here and a minute there, palming, which I don't know if you remember we did. And now that space, when I exhale, can sometimes be a minute long, where I have absolutely no need to inhale. It's the relaxation part of the breathing cycle. So I would say, to really succinctly, I guess, answer your question, in tennis, I have people, I ask them to make the sound, mm, as they make contact at the moment with the ball, like, like it tastes good, like, mm. Mm. And I, I tell them, you don't have to make it. I remember that. Yeah. You yeah. don't have to make it forever. You're making it for three reasons. One, you're making it because it connects the breath to what you're doing, which means your mind and your body are working together to do what you want to do. In this case, hit a ball. So that's one. Two, 
you're making the sound so that you can be aware of when it isn't there. Ah. So if you're playing and all of a sudden it's really quiet, you're like, ooh, maybe I'm holding my breath. You just simply want to become aware of breathing. This is very spiritual. I mean, any meditation or yoga trainer will tell you that this is the way the ancients have focused on their breathing for years. Yes, but I never knew what spiritual meant. And spiritual, I get, means focus internally. And then the world you know, like opens up. This, it turns out there's this whole other universe that we're not necessarily aware of that we can't see. And it comes, you know, through that, through that awareness. You know, there's those intuitive, you can call it an intuitive hit. When you get a thing like you're walking out the door and and you're just walking out and you look at your umbrella and you have this thing like, oh, I should bring that. And you're like, and then you look and it's sunny out, and then you go, you leave, you don't bring it. Because your mind said, I know more. And said, no, it's sunny out. We don't need the umbrella. But who said, why don't you take the umbrella? <laughs> who gave that command? Because that I call an intuitive hit. Now, if I get one of those, I do it. I don't ask any questions. I do, okay. Invariably, like later that day, that thing like, oh, should I bring this? Nah. But you had this intuitive hit and I didn't listen to it. And yes, breath was the doorway in to that world. But breath led me, yeah, it led me to all the things. It led me to be able to see the thoughts go by as clouds. It led me to experience relaxation in a deeper way than I knew was possible. And yeah, the other part of breathing is just the way we breathe naturally. Nasal diaphragmatic breath. I don't know if you're familiar, but when you sleep, that's what you do. The air goes in and out through the nose and all the filters are in the nose, all the humidifiers are in the nose. And it helps connect us to our relaxation nervous system, known as parasympathetic or now even just your calming nervous system. Any of those. All through breath. So what does all of this have to do with tennis? Well, what it had to do is this is the path as a teacher in tennis. It started, I didn't want to teach. I resented having to teach. I hated teaching. I couldn't wait for it to be over. <laughs> okay. It paid the bills. So I think that makes me like, God, the, from what I hear, that's like 70% of the world doing something they don't want to do because they have to pay the bills. And I was talking with a friend about it, and I was looking for other things I could do that I enjoyed, and you know the whole thing about original play and what I was doing at the school, but that didn't pay, but that filled my heart and made me feel amazing, but it didn't pay anything. So teach. I was like, okay. And I had the breathing. I had connected the breathing. I knew that something was there. And I basically, over time fell in love with teaching as I began to realize I love helping someone else get better. I love seeing the moment when they like have an aha moment. And I began putting together a curriculum that I could give you an aha moment several times in each lesson. I would say almost every time we play at least one, but usually several because it's actually your birthright. And it's my birthright to have aha moments all day long. That's what optimal learning is. That's what these little children do all day long. It's like, oh my God, you know, like whatever it is they're doing, it's optimal learning. And then I realized, oh, I fell back in love with learning. So I fell in love with teaching and the breath, connect the breath to the act of hitting a ball causes a state of relaxation. So every lesson I give, I start the same way. I say, what would you like us to focus on today? And there's a whole host of answers that can come from that. 
but I can't help you. My job is very simple. I'm here to help you clarify and fulfill your agenda. Okay, so I'll stop here and we will split this into two episodes as we always do uh, for longer conversations. If you have the time to come immediately to join us in the second part of this conversation, please do. Otherwise, make it a point in your calendar to continue this conversation. In part two, we will be talking a lot more about TELUS, the effortless life operating system, and the idea that living and working and engaging in the effortless path does not necessarily have to lead you to less success. As a matter of fact, it can make you a lot more successful, definitely in the long term. We will talk about how you can apply it yourself and how you can avoid burnout, you can avoid extra stress, you can avoid injuries and all of the symptoms that we now have taken for granted in the modern world. So if you can join us right now or otherwise come a little later, either way, I will see you in part two.